Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more. From Chef's Table to The Bachelor to Queer Eye to The Real Housewives of Atlanta, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of Unscripted TV with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Friday Night Tykes among my credits. Each episode, I talk to the talented people who make Unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows not just something you watch, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz, if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started today. My guest is the Emmy Award-winning creator and executive producer of the critically acclaimed hit series Queer Eye, currently on Netflix, originally on Bravo. He's also the co-founder of Scout Productions, where he is the executive producer on HBO Max's voguing competition series Legendary. Some other credits include Stay I Do for Netflix, To Catch a Beautician on VH1, and Equal, which is a really cool, very powerful four-part docuseries on HBO Max that I definitely want to get into done a whole lot of stuff and he's from the same hometown that i am cincinnati ohio please welcome david collins david how you doing man i am well steve thank you very much for having me yay cincinnati skyline five ways two cheese conies onion mustard it's like i didn't get to go home for this past <laughs> christmas and that's what i miss i mean i miss my family of course but i miss the skyline Steve, just to be clear, I miss my family too, but the skyline comes first. Let's be clear. Cincinnati. We both kind of we both grew up there. It's not necessarily the place that you would think of two guys going from Cincinnati to LA to get into entertainment, to get into uh, T whether it's TV or movies. Sure. You know, tell me a little bit about what got you here. And I can share my experience as well because sure. I know I don't know about you, but the last thing my parents ever wanted me to do was move to LA. Well, actually, yeah, I actually have a great Cincinnati story for my my very humble beginning because it it started in right Cincinnati. I uh, out of high school, I went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, uh, where I was a bobcat for four years, and honestly, four of the most important critical years of my life. I I really count myself blessed and lucky that I landed at Ohio University in the late 80s when we were one of the largest um, kind of government funded uh, media schools around. So our our uh, public radio station, our public television station, the, uh, the Scripps uh, School of Journalism were really well funded. So we had top of the line equipment and all of that. So four years of college, when I got out of college, I really knew how to edit. I really knew how cameras worked. I because I I had a lot of hands-on experience there. But the the part where my my journey starts is I graduated in June, 
uh, of 89, yes, I am old, but June of 89 uh, of Ohio University. And uh, I had one of those like where, you know, the universe lines everything up, timing and luck. And it was, uh, it was in August, it was sweltering as it can be in Cincinnati, hot, but it was pouring rain. And I was gonna go to Chicago and be an editor at Edit Hell, because that's really what I thought I wanted to do, was yeah. live in a dark box uh, as an editor back in the day. But um, uh, the job didn't start until October that I had. So I said, well, you know what? I'll go intern down at the Cincinnati Film Office. And uh, the day, luck would have it, the day that I pulled up at the film office, the film commissioner was having a literal nervous breakdown. And she's like, you, you have a car. Can, can you get to the airport now? Go. And I was like, yeah, what am I doing? She's like, I need you to pick someone up. Well, actually, you're going to pick up two people. Don't talk to them. Just drive them to, to the Westin downtown. And I was like, okay, whatever. Well, uh, when I pulled up to the airport and I knew who I was picking up, I was picking up Peggy Reisky and a, a new unknown uh, lady named Jody Foster. Man. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, Peggy Reisky and Jody Foster were there to start producing uh, Jody's directorial debut, Little Man Tate. And it was pouring rain and I'm in a 1976 uh, Toyota Corolla with like rusted floorboards. There's rain coming up through it. Uh, long story short, from the drive from the airport to downtown Cincinnati, I, of course, didn't shut up. I just chatted my head off with Jody and Peggy. And when Jody got out of the car, she stuck her head in the car. She's like, I'll see you tomorrow morning, 6.30 a.m. Don't be late. And I really didn't know what had happened to me. So the next morning, I showed up in a three-piece suit. Oh, my a, goodness. With a, with a briefcase at the, at the production office and walked into a room of all women uh, literally laughing their asses off in the in the room because here stands this little 21 year old boy in a three piece suit with a suitcase and uh, with a briefcase in his hand. And Jody gave me three bits of advice right then and there. And she said, "Look, you don't ever have to be a PA. Um, you gotta you gotta be hungry for this and and listen to me. Everyone thinks they want to be on set. If you want to go babysit uh, uh, parking cones, be my guest." Or you can sit down at my desk and watch the entire movie go across my desk and learn how to make be a filmmaker. And that's what I did. I sat down at her desk and Jodie Foster gave me the most amazing master's and doctorate that I could have gotten post-college. So I went right out of college and got my, my master's and my doctorate directly from the, the School of Hard Knocks with Jodie Foster in a film called Little Man Tate. From there, I went right on to another movie uh, that happened to come into Cincinnati, where I became uh, a second, second AD. And uh, I forgot to tell you, on that movie, Little Man Tate, uh, I met my ex-husband and business partner and co-parent, Michael Williams. He was the location manager on that. Wow. And we would go to Create Scout uh, years later. But Michael uh, and I went off and I, I started doing locations for him, became an assistant location manager on um, uh, House Sitter, a movie with Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin. And literally from there, boom, 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 I did really big studio features. So I came from a very scripted world, big, uh, everything from Hoffa 
to um, Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> where uh, Dumb and Dumber, I became the DGA UPM uh, for that. And uh, that is when we kind of landed in Boston. Well, I, by the way, I left Cincinnati and went to Boston with Michael, right? Michael and I set up shop and we started Scout in 1994, uh, almost 30 years ago now. Uh, in the upstairs of our house in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. From there, went on to uh, produce a lot of indie features during the kind of fun, hip uh, 90s indie filmmaking time. And from that, coincidentally and sadly, landed into this really moment of, of despair and when 9-11 happened and all production stopped coming into Boston. Um, we had become kind of the, the preeminent production hub for all of LA. So when all of LA would come to the East Coast to shoot, Boston was always used, New England at large, right? So uh, we, yeah. Yeah, we ended up, uh, business kind of was drying up, but we had started working for the documentary genius and, and uh, filmmaker Errol Morris. And I, wow. I had started to produce for Errol with Michael. One of the very first uh, feature docs I ever produced was Mr. Death, the, the Life and Times of Freddie Lucher Jr. And that led us into uh, me selling my very first television series, which was for Errol Morris, a show called First Person that we sold back in the day to IFC uh, when it was... Um, Rainbow Media, and I, I worked with Francis Barrick there, and this is relevant to the rest of the story, but I, uh, we made our first show with Errol, and during that time, uh, we started to make The Fog of War with Errol, Michael and I wow. did, which ended Huge. up the Oscar for uh, Best Documentary Feature. And during that same year, we created a little show called Queer Eye, and so- yeah. That year was uh, a big year for us. Oscar, Emmy year, all in the same year, all from, from, from you know, Robert McNamara, Mr. McNamara to Carson Kressley and everything in between. So I have had a wild and furious ride, but I've been doing this, I've been in this business since I was 20 years old and I'm 53. So nonstop adventures in the world of, uh, feature films, independent feature films, studio films, documentary features, doc series, and then obviously formats along the way. What was your biggest influence early on? Because for me, you know, like I'm sure for you, like those early days watching TV, watching movies in Cincinnati, we're just suburban kids. Yeah. You, you know, what inspired you to go this path? I mean, you got to work with Jodie Foster at you know 21, what inspired you to go into television, to go into film early on? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I <laughs> I wanted to be a veterinarian. Does that count? Um, I really I wanted to go to Ohio State and go be a large farm animal uh, veterinarian. Uh, I was in FFA out back in Lakota High School. And I had, I had a, uh, a, one of those high school counselor moments where the high school counselor sat me down and said, David, God bless you, brother. Those grades of yours aren't going to get you into vet school, into medical school. Um, but I also think that you're not really meant to do that. You're meant to 
share your stories because I, I was, you know, always talking and always wanting to figure out a way to, to share my stories and tell stories, right? And that little nudge put me down that path. I had always done a lot of kind of public speaking and, and various things, but I realized that uh, the medium of television, like you said, as a kid in Ohio, it was a way to get out, right? It was yeah. honestly, uh, without sounding a little too dramatic, you know, I was a, a little Southern Baptist gay kid sitting in the church, you know, churches of, of Mason, Ohio, being told that he was gonna, you know, burn in hell for being gay. And I knew that I needed to get out, right? And yeah. television, television was that escape. Television was the escape for me to see all of the beautiful possibilities outside of my little world that I was in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. But mind you, I don't say that derogatorily because I do believe that my upbringing and coming from Ohio and Cincinnati and those, you know, corn fed roots, if you will, are, are beyond important for, for making who I am today and then allow me to tell the stories that I'm so blessed to get to tell today. For me, right, it was the love for interviewing people. Ah, and like, yeah. I developed a early on, like, whether it was sports or watching Nick Clooney on the news. Yeah. Yeah. Or Jerry Springer. Oh, Jerry, my God. Jerry was yes. our news guy. Yeah. People, yeah. people, that's so funny that you say that because most people are like, wait, Jerry Springer was on the news? Yeah, he was our, our NBC news anchor. Yeah. but And the funniest thing about that, right, was you remember Jerry Springer's commentary that became kind of his, like, thing on the, you know, the crazy talk show. That's, he started that on WLWT, yes. in, you know, the news in Cincinnati. Yeah, 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 WLWT. Yes, and, I love it, Steve. And, and the thing is, is like, I don't know if you remember this, but that was like must watch television in Cincinnati was like, Jerry, like people, my, my parents would watch it every night. They'd be like, oh, well, what did Jerry say? Which is but, insane, yeah. right? Like, you remember about- he used to host a show in the lobby of the hotel downtown. Now, I don't know, you're, you're too young for this probably, but another inspiration, I love that you're taking me down memory lane, Steve. <laughs> I, I grew up on a local show in Cincinnati called Uncle Al and Captain Wendy show. Oh my goodness. No, this one I don't know. Well, you'll have to look it up. Do a little Googling. Uncle Al and Captain Wendy was made locally. And my mom was, I had a beautiful mother when I was young and she was a, a little bit of a model and she got asked to do the Barks root beer ads. So she would go down and do the Barks root beer ads where she would take my brother and I and throw us into the audience of the Uncle Al and Captain Wendy show. So I I got to see the the excitement of live television of you know you know multicam in a studio television as a young kid and definitely probably caught the bug even then when I think about it now. So I'm glad you jogged my memory to even think about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uncle and, and they had a character named Ringo Rango. I remember I wanted, oh my to be, God. I wanted to be Ringo Rango so bad. <laughs> oh. So, okay, are you, so you're saying in the same year you were working on Fog of War and <laughs> you had the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy going? Like, 
That is that is the truth, Ruth. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, you know, the creation of Queer Eye happened in Boston. Michael and I on a on a rainy Sunday afternoon with our best friends in the south end of Boston, which was the the gay community area. It's like our WeHo here, right? It was the yeah. south end, and uh, and you know I. I I've told this story a million times in a million different interviews, but the, the condensed version is that the show literally um, unraveled in front of our eyes. Um, I, we walked into a, a large artist studio. It was art, it was open studios. So all the artists had all of their lofts open and the public would walk in and out to look at their art, right? And, and see the artists. And we walked up these stairs into a, a very large artist studio and you know, got handed a glass of wine and a little cheese. And right as we entered the room, there was this kind of very large kerfuffle happening in the middle of the room. Someone started talking really, really loud and the rest of the room started to get quiet. And as that room got quiet, you heard this woman's voice get louder and louder as she berated her husband publicly saying, look at you, why, why do you look like this? You can't look like the rest of them. Why, why can't you look like them? And she points across the way to this group of highly dressed, very stylized men. At that point, you realize, ah, oh, we're in South End, probably gay men. And yeah. those men quickly turned with glasses of champagne in hand and walked across the room with this like sense of confidence and charge and surrounded the poor helpless man who was being braided by his wife and quickly really turned to the wife and said, ma'am, 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 please. This is not how we do this. You know, confidence breeds success. We don't tear down other people. We don't tear down our partners. And they started fixing his hair and tucking in his shirt and adjusting him a little bit and telling him, you look great. You know, just a little bit of this and a little of that. You have great style. Don't listen to her, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I turned to, to my then he was my husband and business partner. We had started Scout at that point. We were in the middle of making The Fog of War and I looked him dead in the eye and I was like, did you see that? That was like Queer Eye for the straight guy. And as it came out of my mouth, uh, Steve, I, I tell this story a lot, but I will tell you as a, as a fellow uh, you know, producer, it, I didn't know what a format was. I, wow. you know, I made, I made uh, scripted features, indie features. Uh, I had just made Brad Anderson's um, amazing thriller that was set in Massachusetts uh, called Session Nine. It's a very well-known thriller slash psychological thriller. I, I, I came from that world. I came from learning documentaries from Errol Morris, but the idea of what a format was didn't mean anything to right. me. And yeah. I, I went home that night and literally uh, conceived because I was obsessed with Esquire magazine back in the day, these five categories of fashion, grooming, interior design, culture, food, and wine. And those became the prototypes for the five men who would ultimately become the Fab Five who would come in to save the day of uh, one helpless straight man back in the original incarnation. And that's where uh, Dave Metzler and Sean Baker and Brian Robel, all the early development guys that worked with Michael and I, we crafted a, an old, a really amazing lookbook with the conceit of the show in it. And uh, I didn't know anybody in the business except for Francis, 
who I had sold uh, First Person to with Errol Morris. So I called Francis. I was like, hey, Francis, I have this idea for a show. And she's like, uh-huh. And, and she said, well, come in, we'll pitch it. And I went to, to uh, Jersey, actually, uh, with Michael and pitched Queer Eye for the Straight Guy to um, uh, Bravo, who was at that point owned by Rainbow Media, had nothing to do with, with NBC or Comcast, right. right? Yeah. It was a teeny, teeny little network. It was Bravo. They had inside the actor's studio. She just laughed her way through the pitch, just for the name alone, literally shook her head. Yeah. And uh, somehow or another, in the in the middle of that, she's like, I don't know what the hell that really is, but this seems like one of those things I should just roll the dice on. So she greenlit a pilot. And we went to town uh, casting for the pilot and ended up shooting the pilot in Boston, delivered it, and in the middle of delivering the pilot, the massive merger with NBC Universal happened. And all, all things died and the deal came to an end. It was all like, oh, we were so close. Really? Moment, right, yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. so, so close. And um, in about a six month period, seven month period went by during the merger and acquisition, the M&A, right? Which was massive back then. It was one of the very first big moments where they went in and bought all these little cable companies and were starting to rebrand them. Francis managed to make it through the merger and into Bravo and Jeff Gaspin was the president of NBC and somehow or another she convinced Jeff or had me pitch it to Jeff and Jeff saw the, the pilot and it was like, again, I don't know what the heck this is or what it really means, but let's give it a shot. Yeah. And we got picked up and made our first season of Queer Eye uh, that obviously went on to uh, become a global phenomenon and, and, and one of large, NBC Universal's largest international selling formats of all time. Aside from being just a, a tremendous format, like I'm a format guy yeah. and I appreciate it as a format. What's the magic behind Queer Eye? To not only just be Queer yeah. Eye for the straight guy, but now, now transcend that, yeah. go to yeah. Netflix and be just Queer Eye yeah, it's a format. It's a good format. It's a solid, solid, solid format. It's been, you know, I, not to chew my own horn, but it, 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 it has definitely been praised for being one of the most kind of solid, clean, right. simple formats there is, right? It's yeah. transformation at its best. Um, we have always had this philosophy that transformation through information told with comedy that has heart is our truth and our filter for all things. And, and that's the magic of Queer Eye. Queer Eye is, is not about getting a new outfit, a new haircut, and a new apartment. It's about that inner confidence that comes when five people just stop and, and pay attention to just you. And you become the center and, and they're listening and hearing what you're saying. And they're taking that information and, and transforming it with you and along with you and holding your hand along the way and walking through the fear of the process. Um, look, the new incarnation of Queer Eye, 
the, the team that makes it work from Jen Lane, our showrunner, to Rob Eric, my business partner, and Jen Levy at Netflix, who's been our, our godmother and, 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 you know, champion of this at Netflix from day one. This is, we launched unscripted for, for all of Netflix with, with Queer Eye. And, and look, it, it worked the second time because it wasn't, it, it, it had the same, same heart, right? The heart yeah. had changed. The format adjusted and became very 2017 for when it, when it came back, but the heart of the show never changed. And, and that heart is, is that confidence breeds success. And then it doesn't matter if you're gay or straight or black or white. Um, this is about love and about sharing your your confidence and strength with someone else and, and letting them, you know, queer means different, right? That's all it really means. And so mm-hmm. queer eye is just means a, a fresh perspective, a different view, a, a new way of looking at it. And that's what that's what queer eye is really all about. It's just a, a shift in our perspective of how we look at things and, and how we get to feel good about that shift. Scout has done a, a really great job of doing that on a lot of different shows um, in terms of taking a unique perspective, finding different kinds of shows. Legendary, you yeah. guys found a very unique world in terms of a voguing competition. Yeah, Tell well, me a little bit about Legendary. Sure. You know, I, I, I'm really, really proud of Legendary for, for just that reason, Steve, is that it, it was probably one of the most marginalized communities in the world, right? African-American trans community, right? Which everyone thought when they saw Legendary, oh, it's this new world. Well, Ballroom's been around for 35 plus years. Yeah. Paris is Burning, right? The doc, great, beautiful documentary. Or on Netflix, you can watch a documentary called The Queen in which you, you, you see Crystal LaBeja, who really is credited for starting the ballroom culture and scene. But that world, uh, the ballroom culture is, is just got the massive heart to it, right? It's about helping. It's about these houses that have a house mother or a house father that, uh, you know, in the real world, go out onto the streets and kind of bring these kids who have been kicked out of their home for being trans or gay or, or any uh, incarnation of LGBTQIA, right? Uh, and for numerous reasons, but these house parents, these house mothers or fathers kind of bring these kids together, make sure that they get fed and, and get to school and get their basic needs taken care of. And in return for that, they go to these balls and get to really live this amazing life through um, aspiration and, 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 you know, the categories of ballroom are hysterical, you know, executive realness, um, all, all kinds of great, great yeah. categories. But the beauty of, of this world was that I got taken to a ball by um, Renata Lombardo, who is uh, our, our head of, of, one of our heads of development and talent and scout. And she's like, there's something about this world. There's something very special. And I instantly saw how special it was. And we wanted to figure out how do we celebrate this community? How do we put this community out there and not do a sad, you know, tall telltale story about the ballroom world of, oh, poor homelessness or that, right? But instead, give them this massive stage to celebrate the beauty of ballroom. And that's what ballroom's all about. Ballroom has got all kinds of shade, right? It's all fun and yeah. it's all fun and messy, but it's always done with love. 
everybody in that community loves on each other and lifts each other up. So when HBO Max, uh, you know, Sarah and Joe Connell and, and the team there, they got it instantly. We, we really could not be more blessed that we landed with HBO Max, who has supported us in, in really creating this amazing world for, um, for the ballroom scene. So we're, we're just now starting Legendary Season 2. I am going tonight, actually, to go meet the new houses that are flown in from all across the United States. And in this day and age of COVID, try to uh, try to produce a season with uh, without an audience, which is going to be a challenge. We're really grateful. We built a an amazing team for season two. Uh, big showrunner Lee Metzger, who came from The Voice, is is running the show for us. And amazing director Glenn Weiss, famous. 17-time Emmy-winning director. So we're, we have an amazing team that knows that we're being challenged right now by COVID and want to figure out how to, you know, how to still bring the, the specialness of Legendary. Because I don't know if you've seen Legendary, but it's a lot of fun to watch. It's, uh, it's one of those shows that just visually, you get sucked in visually, but also the performances and the characters of all of the houses are so cool. Well, that that was my, you know one of the things that struck me was the style the visuals you know it looks there's no other show that looks like legendary no, uh, so right. so yeah i mean that, that and that's something that you can't just throw a couple people out there i mean that takes a big crew it takes very specific art design and set design so it does it does yeah. we're getting very lucky very very lucky that we're doing right now a huge uh what i would call a scripted unscripted hybrid for disney plus called the quest that is mammoth we were partnered with burton elise from amazing race uh and uh and the executive producer of lord of the rings mark rodetsky uh and that is is again one of the it's a, it's a competition series set in this imaginary world of fantasy and and that again the aesthetic of that and the the power of a show like that's quite, quite uh, overwhelming. It's really, really amazing. The Quest, now that was the one that was on ABC, right? And now it you was, guys are- Yeah, seven years, yeah. eight years ago. Okay. And, uh, and obviously ABC is part of Disney. And we went back into Disney Plus and Disney Plus uh, loves, loves, love, love that show. And, you know, when it came out back then, it was a weird summer release and, I think they got some cold feet, ABC did back in the day about the marketing of it, but it was one of the most critically acclaimed shows uh, around, right? And if someone realized they had missed a moment there. So we are updating the format, bringing in bigger and better teams, and obviously special effects have greatly changed in the past eight years. Sure. Um, so the amping up of all of that is, is unbelievably amazing so we have that going on and then yeah you mentioned equal we we did equal for hbo max, uh, max that is uh, an amazing four-part series that came out uh, a couple months ago it's it's really this amazing look at all of the unsung heroes of the lgbtq movement um in particular uh, pre-Stonewall, right? I think we all kind of know that Stonewall was that seminal moment in which 
uh, the fight for equal rights became public and became, uh, you know, in the forefront of our, you know, collective consciousness. But what we've done is really remarkable. Our director, Stephen Hayek, really amazing documentarian, uh, just took uh, recreations of a lot of these things. So we have some amazing actors that recreated a lot of seminal moments in uh, the history of the right and fight for equality. It's really beautifully done. If you haven't seen it yet, definitely check it out. It's called Equal, it's HBO Max. And we're, we're out and about with a lot of new docs as well uh, that we're, we're just about to go out with. So the doc division of Scout, you know, people think, oh, it's the Queer Eye guys. They, they forget that we came from and have an Oscar for the fog of war. And docs is where we started, let alone, you know, indie features and, and, and scripting content. So uh, the evolution of Scout as a company uh, has been amazing. We have a, a new president, Eric Korsh, who comes from a big, vast world of new media, whether that was at Mashable or uh, other companies like that. But he brings us uh, some great insight into the way the company is evolving in our storytelling, in our medium. We, we did a great coming out special for Facebook for right. National Coming Out Day, which is really great uh, to see. And have a lot of uh, new fun little digital things happening that in a million years, I, I don't think I would have done that. We have a show on Snapchat called Hold, Hold That Pose For Me that was born out of, uh, out of Legendary that's doing really well on Snapchat. So as a, as a storyteller and, and content creator, I'm in a, a really amazing place at, at 30 years into doing this from Jodie Foster and huge studio movies uh, down to now, you know, uh, eight minute content on, on Snapchat. I, I feel like I, I continue to grow and learn uh, how amazing the opportunities are when you take technology and, and good old fashioned great storytelling and, and use those mediums in new ways. Think about it. You've got great photos on your phone, but what are you doing with them? If you don't have free prints yet, you got to get it. Free prints is a free app for iPhone and Android that lets you print all of those photos for free. You get 1,000 four by six photo prints a year, and all you pay is a small shipping charge. You can even print photos of other sizes for next to nothing. Just select the photos you want to print, choose the sizes, and you're done. Your premium quality prints will arrive on your doorstep in just days. Free Prints is one of the world's favorite apps. Download it now at freeprints.com and start enjoying real professional quality free prints. No subscriptions, no commitments, just free prints. Again, go to freeprints.com to get the app and your 1,000 free prints. Let me ask you about Equal. How important of a story is that for you? And and how? What, tell me a little bit about making yeah. uh, that doc series. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's really important. Uh, it it was born out of I, I wish Michael was here with me. So we were honored the uh, Smithsonian as well as um, the kind of largest uh, paper archival of LGBTQ uh, IA uh, content in the world. Uh, at UCLA asked us for Queer Eye memorabilia. And they were looking to, uh, you know, bring in, you know, from the original Queer Eye, maybe the suits that were in the in the marketing thing at the Smithsonian. And, and we got invited to come to the library. 
which is the largest, uh, like I said, treasure trove of, of gay history. And when we went there, we realized how many untold stories there were that, that just so deserved the, the light of day. Um, and Michael and I, um, you know, we, like I said, we, we were, you know, not only business partners, but uh, we are co-parents. We're daddy and papa to 12-year-old twin girls. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah. Thanks, yeah. And our girls, we realized, just like us, as, as gay men of a certain age, I don't know my history, right? I don't know whose shoulders I'm standing on, who, who, who came before me. I knew the Stonewall story a little bit. And then, you know, after that, there's, you know, Ellen did so much amazing work. Queer Eye broke out and did that. But we were like, who really did the hard work that came before us? Because it's a lot easier, obviously, to come out and do your work now, right? And tell your sure. stories. It wasn't back then. So when we started diving into the archives, we realized that it was it was more than just, you know, can we do this? It was, we have to do this. We have to figure out how to tell these stories. Um, and again, our partners at HBO Max saw it right away, uh, realized the opportunity of, of being able to, to kind of do these historical decades, if you will. And it goes all the way back to the, you know, turn of the century, the early 1900s, and, and Lucy uh, Hick Hickox, who is one of the very first trans women, down to Byron uh, Rustin, who was one of Martin Luther King's uh, speechwriters who was gay. These stories that you get to get into are just mind-blowing when you realize how, how, what pioneers they were, what fighters they were for our equal rights. So Michael and I, as you, you know, asked me, why is this personal? It's personal because I want my kids to know this history. I want the young LGBTQIA community to know that they get to live this beautiful open life of, of with no shame in their game at all and living their life out loud and proud and, and as themselves, especially as we now evolve even further in this world of, of you know, using proper pronouns and, and right. learning how, how that, that it is difficult. A lot of old folks are like, what does that mean? I don't want to do that. You're like, well, you know what? You don't want to do a lot of things. But we used to think that this word was okay to say and that was okay to say. And we don't say those things anymore. Right. We don't do them because we've evolved, right? We're evolving. Right. And I think it's, it's critical that we challenge ourselves, especially after what we just lived through in the past four years, yeah. to, uh, to, to really be strong um, uh, human beings and, and evolve and lift each other up. And again, transformation through information told with comedy that has heart uh, is Scout's main filter. We believe in an omnicultural storytelling uh, point of view that is about, I look at you and you look at me and we share. Steve, look, just you and I, we, we found a common ground. We're from Cincinnati. We, we know that we're, we're good guys. We just want to get out there and share the stories, right? That's, that's, what, that's what this is about. That's why it's so important, all of this. So I appreciate that you're asking me these questions and they're important. I love documentaries and I think those are the best types of docs because not only is it entertaining, but you really are learning something that we all, like you said, we all should know these stories and it gives you a little bit of outrage because I can't believe this happened, but it also gives you some hope and there's heart there. I love doc series like that. Um, and, and so I applaud you guys for doing that. Oh, well, 
Well, thank you. Thank you. We, 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 uh, and, and we're excited about some upcoming docs that we have as well. You know, again, important stories well told. That's, that's, that's also another filter that we use at Scout. You know, uh, we have a great, great new guy, Joel, not new guy, but uh, head of our, our, our doc development, Joel Chiodi, who is just having a blast meeting with meeting with all these really amazing uh, filmmakers and, and storytellers who have are being inspired not only from Queer Eye and Legendary and, and, and obviously Equal, but to bring us stories that, that they want to get told as well. So we're excited about that. Well, I have to then ask what it was like to work with the great Errol Morris. Yeah, I will tell you. I will tell you that, again, um, I know I sound like a broken record, but I have had a really, really blessed career, right? I, who gets Jodie Foster on day one of, <laughs> of, of grad school, right? And then gets yeah. to really sit at her desk, uh, not only a, a brilliant childhood actress, but a producer, director, and visionary who um, taught me everything inside and out. So I, I got to see how a real, that was with, I remember it was Orion Pictures back in the day. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and I learned the, the beauty of how these departments, all of these teams come together to, to tell these stories. And so I, I learned scripted, right, very early on. So when we met Errol, it was, it was literally oil and water because I'm like, where is the script? What do you mean there's no script? I need a script. I got to break down the script. Right. And, and that script for me was everything, right? Because I had become a DGA UPM and I had learned how to break a script down from budgetarily and scheduling wise. This was back when we used to have these paper scripts, thousands of them up on the wall. Then again, none of, none of your young listeners are going to know, but that's how it used to be done back in the day. Pre-cell phones, when we would, we would schedule a movie out, it would take the entire room on scripts, but it was through Errol, again, how grateful I am that I learned, you know, the, the title of your show here, the art of, you know, no script, no problem. Yeah. Um, because Errol is, look, uh, you know, he's a genius. He's a living genius. His, the way his brain works is like no one else's that I've ever met any time in the day of my life. He, he, he the way he processes creative and his visual aesthetic let alone his heart and and more his logistics of how he approaches it I, i've never met anyone like him and you know it wasn't always easy he's not he's not an easy one and he wouldn't mind me saying that you know he's yeah. um he challenges you he pushed michael williams and i really really hard but he did that because it's what makes you deliver more right we, we, we dug hard and, and we learned we would fall a lot and not get what he wanted. But what we also got to learn was the fun of getting inside of Errol Morris's head and then having to go and try to execute that and bring that to life with him. Um, in the movie, Mr. Death, that's about, you know, neo-Nazis and, 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 and Holocaust denial. It's, it's, it's revisionist history, right? told through the eyes of a, of a little electrician from Malden, Massachusetts, who accidentally got called by the, by the government to fix an electric chair. Like, come on, where your head's like, what? And, and that, that story, you know, started with us 
stop talking to Fred and then kind of watching Fred. There's a lot of detective work that went on. And, and then we learned, oh, Errol, we gathered this information and then it goes into the editor and Errol and us and the editor all sit together and tear it up and put it back together again. Our, we talk a lot about, I don't know if you know, but our, our one of Errol's editors is Doug Abel, who has recently become famous for the Tiger King. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Doug, Doug worked with Michael and Errol and I for years uh, doing first person. He cut most of first person and then Mr. Death and the Fog of War. Doug and Karen Schmier, who was also a, uh, was a very, very well-respected editor who passed away many years ago uh, from a tragic accident in New York City. But she, uh, there's a fund, the Karen Schmier Fund, that helps young documentarian filmmakers and editors uh, get their stories told. I always like to mention that I forget how much we miss Karen and, and what a, an important voice she was with Errol Morris as well. Look, Errol Morris was a blast. That's all I can say. He, it was always an adventure with him and he had these files and files of, of just absolute insane stories that we would pull out and just talk for hours. And I mean hours about whether it was Temple Grandin, the premier designer of Humane Slaughterhouses, which was our, our premier episode of First Person, or Sandra, whose name is forgetting me, who only dated serial killers in prison, right? Like if you watch First Person, you'll see all these amazing characters that, uh, that Errol would have. And then we got the uh, the honor of helping Errol craft and bring to light uh, those stories. Being Home with Hunker is a podcast where we visit with designers, artists, and creatives in the spaces that express and shape their identities, their homes. If you love design and decor, if you're curious about how people live, or if you've been transitioning or transforming your own home, you'll love these honest conversations. Join us weekly at Being Home with Hunker. Visit hunker.com forward slash podcast where you can find, subscribe, and listen to the show. You had some great people that you learned from to get you to where you are now, but you know, you have achieved an insane amount of success. What advice do you have for young producers now? Sure. Um, you know, see, it's, a, it's an important question, especially like we start at the beginning, right? We're, we're two guys from Ohio who ended up in LA doing what we love to do, right? And that's, that's a rare thing. And the old, the old cliche, right? You know, lo love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. Sure. And, and there's something so, so true about that. Um, I, I would tell young producers, I think a lot is, is that, A, don't get too good at one thing too early because you're going to get pigeonholed, right? Jody's advice to me about not being a PA, she wasn't telling me not to be a PA. What she was telling me to do is don't get too good at being a PA or you're going to get stuck being a PA. Don't be scared to push yourself into the next level. And that, that's something I think that's ex extremely important in this business is don't be scared to push yourself into the next, the next realm, right? If, you're, if, if you look at all of the various departments, everyone says, oh, I want to be a producer or oh, I want to be a director. If you're a director, direct. If you're a producer, produce. If you're a writer, write. 
And, and you have to do those things. You can't kind of do that, right? So right. you find a path, my path, right? I, I worked for Jody as her assistant. And then I, I fell into locations. And through locations, I got to see the art department and the, and the, and the, uh, the Griffin Electric department because locations team, people don't realize, manages all the logistics of the set. So in managing the logistics, you get to see all of the various departments and what those departments do. So I also got to see what I didn't want to do. I knew that I didn't yeah. want to be a grip or electric. I didn't want to be uh, an art director or this, but wow, I really love the budget and scheduling. I, I should learn budgeting and scheduling programs. And, and I did. And, and I taught myself movie magic. And through doing movie magic, I, you know, I landed my first gig as, as the uh, UPM on Dumb and Dumber. And, and learn how to budget and schedule through that movie. So I, I think it's important for, for folks just to challenge themselves, stay hungry, stay excited, and, and stay nice, stay pleasant and, and positive. This industry has a bad rap for all kinds of various folks, but I, I do know that um, you get a lot further with, with honey than vinegar. And, and when we just breathe and, and do the next right thing, um, it's amazing what can happen and, and where you can go, where you can career can go. You know, you could end up on, on, uh, on this show with you, Steve, talking about how blessed your career really is. And, and that's where I am. I'm, I'm very, very blessed and fortunate for all the amazing experience that I've gotten. And, and, and I love to share it with all the young people and interns to, to come and work for us at Scout Productions. That's some great advice for everybody, no matter what age or what, what level you're at. I have to ask, just because I'm curious, I did not know that you and Michael had been married. I did not know that. <laughs> how, for, for, I mean, how do you be, not just, oh, we're gonna be in business together. How do you have such a successful business with yeah. your ex? <laughs> Look, they're talking about the juggling of things. I, uh, yeah, Michael and I were, uh, we met on Little Man Tate. Uh, when I was 21 and he was 31, we were married for 25 years and have twin girls uh, who are 12 years old now and have managed to really become best friends and co-parents and business partners uh, 30 years later. So again, uh, everything works out as, as it's supposed to, but I'm, I'm so grateful to have had the mentor and best friend that I have in Michael. He is, uh, he's truly where the style taste in class for me comes, right? I, my, my Instagram handle said style taste in class. And, and I, I like to say that's me, but it's really Michael. I've, uh, I've learned from all of his style taste in class over the years. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, a really, it's really an amazing thing to, to still say that you're your business partner of all these years, let alone your ex-husband, someone you really like and like to be with, so... That is very true. And I think anyone listening to this can, can take that away if they don't take anything else away from this interview. Yeah. Stay in the good graces of your ex. Your ex. Because <laughs> you just For never sure. know. You never um, know. You never know. All right. I always like to end the show with uh, recommendations of something to watch. You obviously scout has some incredible programming. Uh, on right now as well as uh, coming up. Um, talk to me a little bit about what's out there and what people should watch. Yeah, sure. 
Let me see here. There's so many things to talk. How about how much content there is, though, right? It's hard. It's hard. I just watched uh, Night Stalker this weekend. Did yes. you watch that yet? Love okay, it. I, I've seen a few of the episodes. I, obviously, I do know what happens at the end, but I haven't seen the final episode. Yeah, I loved it. Night Stalker was fun. I watched um, the new Netflix follow doc uh, uh bling is it bling uh uh bling empire that bling. is the one that i wrote down okay oh my goodness bling empire it, it sucks you right in you're <laughs> in trouble when you start seeing seeing those two go at it at the uh, chinese new year party yeah it's yeah. all over and that's usually not my type of tv but i right. I, fell, yes. I fell madly in love with it other than that you know i i am i am uh I watch with my kids. I love we. My kids and I have been watching, rewatching Glee. We started okay. back in episode one of Glee with my kids, which is fun because they're twelve and kind of getting to see that, which has been a has been a good time. And the Gilmore Girls. I'm retro. I'm retro old school right now so it's because <laughs> of my kids. But we're watching the yeah. Gilmore Girls <laughs> along the way. David, thank you so much for the time. I know Steve, you've got a lot going you. on. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. And uh, yay, Buckeyes, go Ohio. Uh, good corn-fed boys, right? Doing the right exactly, thing. Exactly. We got to hope that Joe Burrow uh, gets healthy uh, during the offseason and that the Bengals come back strong. Dude, the Bengals. Cincinnati Reds, Bengals, come on. Life is good. All right, man. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward. Thank you, sir. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. And that's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one, and I will answer it on the show. Email those questions to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.